Okay, so this week is really the heart of the project, which is what is abuse? How do we understand it? Um, definition, as with any problem, uh, is vital. And so much of our battles right now in the world are to define things, to understand truth. And um, if you're familiar with the Just Thinking podcast, uh, they're, they're very long. But one of the things I like about those guys is they're very careful to define what they mean, uh, which is really helpful. And you'll notice in especially contentious issues, people tend to avoid definition. And it's very convenient because then you can make things kind of go wherever you want by not defining it. Uh, and we, we tend to have more of an emotional and aesthetic engagement with things. So I wanted to uh, be very clear and very careful with definition. And uh, if, as we're going, if any of this is unclear or you disagree, like I would love to have that discussion. Uh, I tried to come up with a succinct, clear, helpful definition that's broadly applicable. Um, and uh, if it's not those things, then I don't want to use it. So <laughs> uh, and just because some committee signed off on it doesn't necessarily mean committees sign off on all kinds of dumb things. So when we're looking at abuse, the definition I came up with, five main words, selfish compulsion to the pronounced detriment of another. Try to make it succinct, right? memorable, broadly applicable. You should be able to take that paradigm and put it onto any realm of authority, <coughs> any realm where there's you know, power differentials, as we talked about last week, where there's differences in power, where, where somebody has the potential to abuse someone else. Identifying abuse, we can look at these, these five main terms. And so what I've done is walk through each one. So abuse is selfish. It is aimed at achieving the abuser's wrongly desired ends. And so we've been talking about that. Most, most um, definitions of abuse see power and control as at the heart of abuse. It's all about power and control. And, and therefore the solution is to get rid of those things. I'm saying, no, actually abuse at its heart is about selfishness. Not that someone can't seek power, but one of the ways that you know that it's deeper than that is, is you say, why? Power for what? Right? It's always I power in and of itself is usually penultimate. It's not ultimate. I want power so that I can achieve this end, gain this goal, right? Get this thing that will, I think will make me happy or, or whatever. And so understanding selfishness at the heart of abuse, I think, better aligns with how the Bible talks about sin in general. Uh, so James 4, this is a, a well-known passage. Thank you, John. That's great. You guys, volume good? Okay. So James 4, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, right? Cav cravings and conflict. Why is there conflict in the world? Because of cravings. And those cravings are selfish. And, and, and we'll see this in a little bit, but the selfishness can either be in the aim. So the thing I want, it's just wrong for me to want. Or it can be a question of extent. So it's right for me to want this but how badly I want it and what I'm willing to do to try and get it, that's where the sin comes in. That's where the selfishness comes in. 
right? And, and so you can see how sin can be both, right? It, it might be a thing that I just, I shouldn't want it. Or, you know, no, it's right, you know, it's right to want to get married. It's right to want to have financial stability. It's right to all kinds of, you know, have children, like a thousand things, good and right. But how badly you want it and what you're willing to do to get it, that's where the sin comes in. Um, and, and so understanding that abuse, because it's a, a, an exaggerated sin, right? We don't want to use, people use, if people are using abuse and tossing it around lightly, uh, that's deeply problematic. Because that word, thankfully, still has some cachet in our culture. And, and it, uh, racism is quickly losing all meaning because everything's racist. Right, and and so if you, if we do that with abuse, it's going to lose all meaning too. Abuse needs to have some teeth, uh, and so abuse is is a, a, a more significant sin. It's not a light sin, and where does that come from? It comes from a deep selfishness that says, "I." It's a narcissism. I want what I want, and so much of abusing another person is failing to see them as a person anymore. You have to depersonalize. So think about in war. You know, they, there's all kinds of, uh, the illustration I use in my papers, uh, in World War II, the Germans were called Krauts, which isn't any terrible word, especially from Lancaster. Um, but, but it's depersonalizing, right? They're not Germans. They're certainly not, you know, whatever the guy's name is, he's a Kraut. And you can think of other, and it's, it's one of these moves to kind of take away the humanity of the person so that I can right, in that case, kill someone who's my enemy. But abuse is, I'm not thinking about this person as a person. It's, it, there's a lack of consideration. There's a depersonalization. I'm going to use them for selfish ends, okay? And one of the things that was interesting to me as I was going through scripture was seeing how often there's a connection between jealousy and abuse, right? So um, Rachel, uh, Seen, she's not having children, not unlike uh, her mother-in-law. And she envies her sister, and she says to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. That's extreme, you know, psychologists would probably call that, you know, suicidal ideation. That it, cou it could be, I'm going to kill myself if I don't have kids, or my life is totally bereft of meaning if I don't have kids, right? Why? Because she's looking at someone who has what she wants, and she doesn't have it. And so she has to have that or she cannot be happy. Right? And that's a feeling I think we're all familiar with, right? If I can't get this. I, I, when my kids were little, um, we would use that as a parenting illustration. You know, they want ice cream and they're whining about ice cream. And so we would take the ice cream and we'd put it on the counter and say, oh, great God, ice cream, we worship you. All happiness is in you, right? If we can't have you, there is no happiness. It's silly, but it illustrates the heart and the craving, and it, it gives a category. And that's a silly one, but we can all feel that to different extents, right? Uh, and then Miriam and Aaron complaining against Moses. So in this case, they have, uh, he married a Cushite wife. So they have a, a degree of legitimate critique. But what they say is, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken to us also? They're jealous of Moses' standing, his stature in the community, and so they work to undermine that role because they, they want something, and they're working against. And, of course, that's where the Lord 
uh, strikes Miriam with uh, leprosy. Uh, Korah in number 16, it's the same thing. Uh, he, he gets the congregate or the leaders, I think it's 250 leaders in Israel, to go against Moses. You have gone too far for all in the congregation are holy. Every one of them, the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Saying basically, Moses, you're power hungry. Who do you think you are? Don't you understand? All of us are holy. Right? These very pious sounding platitudes. But you realize there's a, there's a jealousy there. He's looking at Moses and saying, you're all about power. But as, as so often happens in these situations, it's a projection of what the person themselves thinks of. They're all about power, and so they project that motive onto you. Mm-hmm. Right? And so he's willing to go against God's chosen leader to try and get power for himself. Uh, Matthew 17, the Jews are jealous of Jesus. He knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Acts 17, the Jews are jealous of Paul. Right? And there's, there's many other examples, but just jealousy is a common um, motive in situations where people are willing to sin at a, an exaggerated extent, at an abusive type of extent. They're jealous. They want something that somebody else has. And so that quote from Bobbing Bo- there is part of a broader discussion about sin. He says, the organizing principle of sin is self-glorification, self-divination, stated more broadly, self-love or egocentricity, right? All sin is selfishness. Abuse is just selfishness at a high degree, okay, from a motive standpoint. Make sense? Questions? Okay. Second, abuse is compulsion. So the abuser uses words, physical force, or other actions in a highly compelling and authoritative manner that overrides the agency of the abused to some extent. So these are things that we were talking about last week. You've got to have a power differential. You have to have a way to, to override what somebody else wants. So it may just be brute force, right? You're just bigger, you're stronger. Um, it could be uh, governmental force and tyranny. It could be relational dynamics, okay? Uh, that tends to be more the way that women exert power and control is through relational dynamics and shunning and um, so it's but it's compulsion it's compelling it's domination something like coercion is is on the way to that but is not compulsion so think of Proverbs 7 and there's the seductress right and she paints herself up and she goes out and she appeals to the young man the foolish young man who's walking by right she's got the perfume sheets and her husband's gone and she's you know, we're going to take our fill of love. She's coercing. But she's not compelling. He has agency. He doesn't have to follow her. The Bible does describe him as a dumb animal, basically. Like an animal in a, in a snare, in a trap. But it's not abuse. It's just sin at a high level. right? But and so she's, she's guilty of uh, tempting, coercing this young man. But there's no necessary thing that says, yeah, you have to go do that. Right, actually the Lord says, no, you must not do that. You must flee from the evil woman. And so there's a difference there between coercion, uh, and we can still hold coercion responsible without saying that it's abusive. Okay? And, and where this gets into some of the um, challenges is if you think of threats, threats are coercive. 
right? If you don't do this, I will do that. And uh, threats kind of considered in the abstract are not necessarily abusive. But a threat delivered after, so if, if a man strikes his wife or his girlfriend, which would be more common, a threat delivered after he's done that is different than a threat before, right? Because she's, she's got some history to say, actually, he, he would do this. And, and so there's a, another level of um, power attendant in the threat. But, you know, if you know kids at all, you know that they, they threaten all the time. You know, kids on a playground, at least the public schools I grew up in, I'm going to beat you up, right? And they're just, it's brash talk. Is that abuse? Nah, it's bravado. It's might be sinful, right? But so, but threats are, and, and, and threats over an extended season of time, wearing somebody down. When we get to that, right? We have to be able to take kind of the cumulative effect of, of behavior. Um, so this is the, the power and control stuff. This is uh, that, that power differential is uh, necessary but not sufficient. Right? There needs to be some level of, of actual threat. Uh, I think I used the illustration before, you know, if a little, you know, three-year-old boy bet threatens to beat me up, that's not a threat. But if a grown man does, that's more of a threat, especially if he's bigger than me. Or, or if or somebody's got a gun or a knife, or a, right? And so there's a power differential dynamic that we have to say, can this person compel me? And part of what, and we'll get to this, in week six, is uh, we do have a duty of resistance. So if someone threatens or does actually uh, seek to abuse, we have a duty to resist that before the Lord. It's wrong to cooperate with abuse, right? There, there are certainly situations that are much more challenging, and I don't want to get into it too much, but, um, you know, a mom who's got kids and uh, and she's being abused. For her to leave is more challenging because she has the kids to think about and to care for, right? Or for her to even resist. If, if she resists and then he takes it out on the kids, right, then she's dealing with these dynamics of what do I do, right? So some situations, so the Bible talks about slavery. It says slaves, obey your masters, e even if they're not a good master. You obey them as under the Lord, and in that way, and it's a glorious thing if you do good and trust the Lord and are beaten for wrongdoing. That's a and if you can get out of your slavery, get out of it. And I think in that, it's recognizing, look, there are just some situations that you can't get out of, and they're terrible situations, and if you're in that situation, the Lord will give you the grace to endure it. And if you can get out of it, get out of it by all means. Okay. And so that compulsion dynamic, what that compulsion dynamic doesn't do is remove uh, responsibility and agency, um, which we'll get into a little bit. So, but think about COVID. That the government response to that in different areas and different ways was abusive. It was tyrannical. You know, think about China where there's these videos of people being locked in their apartments and screaming, right? When you take away a person's uh, ability to make a living, the Bible likens that to murder. That's why you don't take a millstone in pledge in Deuteronomy, because the millstone is how the miller makes his living, right? And so if you take that in pledge, then he can't make money and provide for his family, let alone pay back the debt, 
So you don't do that to him. That would be wrong. That would be sinful. That's tyrannical. When the government quarantines the healthy, not the sick, that's tyrannical. That's abusive. Right? And so, uh, and, and it's interesting because uh, if a significant portion of people would have risen up and said, are you kidding? We're not staying at home. You know that it would have ended. The lockdowns would have ended. And so how do we think about power and control? How do we think about agency? How do we think about responsibility? Uh, now, I don't, we could, I'm not going to go into that. There's so much we could talk about with COVID, but it's just such a vivid illustration. It's so recent. Um, now, not all compulsion is abusive. The nature of authority is coercion and compulsion. Right? So, um, if you say you need to do, so <laughs> uh, I don't want to sidetrack. Um, if you give a command and you don't, so if you're a parent and you say, don't do that, and the kid does it, and you go, I mean it. I'm going to count to three. Right? What the kid learns is you don't mean it. You're not going to do anything about it, and you have no authority. You can say you have authority, but you're not actually following up on it. And in that way, you actually are sinning against your child and encouraging lawlessness. So that ability to coerce and compel is inherent in authority, which hippies hate. Right? So if you, depending on what generation you grew up in, you might be like, coercion? Right? But that's what authority is. Authority is the right to, and you have this, this right from God. It's not all that authority is, but it's part of it. And so the, the state bears the sword to punish the evildoer, to reward those who are good. The church has the keys to excommunicate those whose uh, life is inconsistent with their profession at a significant level. Parents have the rod to discipline their children. Those are various measures of coercion and compulsion. And, and that's how part of how God has made the world, especially in a fallen world where there needs to be consequence. And so just because there's compulsion does not equal abuse or even sin. There is a righteous compulsion. Okay? And that's part of, for me, in, in looking at how the abuse world is, is uh, attacking things, that's part of the problem with the power and control and equality framework is you're saying to people who, sh who do have authority in God's world, there's no righteous sphere for you to exercise your authority. If you, ha if you exercise power and control, you're a sinner by definition. Well, that's called anarchy, right? If there's no authority, if there's no enforcement, that's anarchy. And that never goes well, right? The, the uh, communists are always like, look, we have to, we have to have tyranny so we can get to the utopia of no authority, right? We have to blow everything up so that we can eventually get to this place where we're just all equal and we, you know, from each, uh, according to their, uh, what's the word they use? Uh, well, it's to each according to his needs, right? So it's from each according to their, you know, whatever, their provision, like to each according to their needs. Just we're all going to be equal, right? Never quite gets there. It always just kind of, stalls in the dictator part where they're trying to boss people around. Um, so that's where uh, that challenge of egalitarianism t 
takes away the grounds for people in authority to exercise that authority with faith. If you don't see authority with good, you will not exercise it with faith, which means even where you do exercise it, you'll be sinning because you'll be like, I think, I don't think I should do this. Right? It's really important. Like if you're going to discipline your child, you're going to correct your child, you need to do that with faith. If you don't, uh, it's not going to go well for anybody. Right? And you're not going to be loving your child. You need to be convinced before the Lord that I'm doing, who does the Lord discipline? Those he loves. If the Lord doesn't discipline you, it shows that you're not his son. You're illegitimate. You don't belong to the family. His discipline is actually a sign of belonging to the family because he's orienting you to authority in his world. And so um, that's why these sorts of things are, are very important. Both, so even just command, right, to lead. We're going to go here. We're going to do this. We're going to, is it right to do that or is that an ego trip? Like we're meeting in this room at 7 p.m. None of you had any say in that. <laughs> I don't feel badly about that at all, <laughs> right? Somebody has to say we're going to meet in this room at this place on this time, right? And that's a way that we love. Right? It's not some power trip. It's just functioning in God's world. You know, you're not going to find a Bible verse that says we have to meet at 10 a.m. Some of you might like 9. Some might like noon. We meet at 10. It's just the way it is. It was that way before I got here. It'd probably be that way after I, you know. That's authority, right? That's leadership. And it's good. If you ever played an instrument, if you try to play a piece and you don't have a conductor, <laughs> how does that go? Right, the conductor uh, brings all the pieces together to make beautiful music. This is this is good. The, the conductor compels. No, no, no. This piece is in three four, not four four. You have to play it in three four, <laughs> in this key. Right? No, that's a flat. It should be a sharp. You know. That's good. This is how God has made the world, and so we we want to say, uh, compulsion is not bad. It is actually good when it's done rightly and well. Okay. And if we don't do that, then we won't walk in faith. Uh, and so I have a, a phrase there, compulsion is a sine qua non, that, that which without there is nothing. Okay? If there's no compulsion, there's no abuse. It can be sin, but it's not abuse. If, if, you're, if it's not overriding the agency of someone. Now, there is such a thing as grooming, and especially children. Children have a God-given disposition to trust adults. Right? And so... Not everyone is equally able or equally responsible. It, you know, there can be developmental disabilities. There can be all kinds of things that reduce the ability of someone uh, to meaningfully resist. Okay. And so these, that's part of why I wanted to have simple, clear categories. These are the categories. Okay, well, now in this situation, how does this category apply? Well, we need to understand Someone who's been abused, sexually abused for a long time, may feel, actually we'll get to that in the next point, so I won't go there. Okay, questions on compulsion? Make sense? All right, abuse is pronounced. It's mistreatment at a high level, whether in its duration, intensity, or both. Uh, so light 
offense is not abuse. It's just sin. There is such a thing. <laughs> not everything has to be to the nth degree. Right? You can just have sin. Uh, it can just be selfishness. It, it, it can be inconsiderate. Right? Um, I happen to think Valentine's Day is an artificial, made-up, silly holiday. Okay? Uh, I do get Lori a card and a small candy, but we don't, we don't do a thing. Am I abusing her? Am I keeping, you know, no. Um, people can use that word lightly. We don't want to. We want to use it. Now, I don't want to get too much into this, but the idea of trauma, trauma is the buzzword. Everything's trauma. Everything's traumatic. One of the many challenges with trauma is um, it's so subjective that it's, it's losing meaning. And two people can go through the same experience and have profoundly different outcomes, okay? For a host of reasons. And so um, there I think there is such a thing as trauma where it's just the, the things you've gone through are so evil and so pronounced and it's so overwhelming that you, it, you, you, it's hard to keep your reference, right? You're still creating God's image. You're still responsible to the Lord. But, but someone who's been through pronounced evil, like, you know, um, we ought to have a high degree of compassion and a slow trigger to correct. Now, we don't love them if we don't have a category of correction. Okay? So to say slow to correct doesn't mean never to correct. And especially if where they're going is impending destruction, like suicide or um, absolute despair, faithlessness, and we say, no, no, that's not true. You can't go there, right? You've been through a, a, a grievous evil, but you can't go there. The Lord is with you. The Lord is good, okay? And so we actually love them by dignifying them and treating them as responsible moral agents. Um, the, there's a book, The Body Keeps the Score. Uh, it's unbelievable the amount of uh, copies that book has sold. It, lots of people are critiquing it. Uh, he has a, an overly simplified understanding of, look, when you go through these things, it just writes it on your body and you, you basically can't do anything about it. And that's just not true. Okay, we are embodied souls, and so our souls do affect our bodies. Our bodies do affect our souls. Um, so the, uh, the person who's a, a drunk, uh, they're turning to alcohol as a savior, take me away from this pain, bring me to a happy place, right? That's a soul issue. And their body can develop a dependency where they need, right? It's compelling. I, if I don't have this, then I, right? Uh, and, and some of the, especially like fentanyl, like some of these newer drugs can be even a thousand times more so. Uh, so we're not denying that those things can have effect. But what we're saying is, uh, in order to actually care for the person. We need to understand them biblically. We're never just at the mercy of our bodies. Every problem we have is a spiritual problem. It may also be a physical problem, but they're all spiritual problems because we're always embodied souls, right? And so if we're not ultimately dealing with the soul issues, we're not caring for people. We're not, I mean, we can care. I, you know, if uh, you know, I broke my wrist playing basketball when I was in seventh grade, uh, and if I would have went to John, I wouldn't, uh, uh, you know, 
he could tell me trust in the Lord with all your heart, but what I really need is a cat, right? Like, and I would be fine with Proverbs 3, that's good, but you know, that's care. But depending on what's going on in my soul, I might need other things too, right? And so we, we want to um, recognize that the challenge with some of these issues of pronounced and detriment uh, is the challenge of objectivity. So if somebody's beaten, there's physical bruises. It's not just a physical issue, it is a spiritual issue too, right? But if somebody says they're verbally abused, how do you assess that? It's much more difficult. Uh, and, and I'll get to that in a, in a little bit. Um, so a good example of this is in Exodus 6. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the, the Israelites were being abused in Egypt, right? Pharaoh was grossly mistreating them, selfishly compelling them. They were slaves. They were being, uh, they were being abused. They were being exploited. They were experiencing governmental tyranny. And they, in a... Um, in a spiritual sense, they did not listen to him because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So on the one hand, we should have compassion, right? I've never been in that situation where I've had to make bricks, period, let alone bricks without straw. Uh, I have laid bricks, uh, but that's different. And I haven't been a slave, and I haven't been you know, just oppressed for years after years after years don't know what that's like. And the Lord raised up a deliverer miraculously who came to them to deliver them and called them to faith and they did not listen to him. <coughs> that's sinful. <coughs> to not listen to the Lord is always sin. It's unbelief. That's what unbelief is. Right? I know the Lord says this. I talked about this Sunday, right? I know he says this. Doesn't apply to me. He doesn't understand. This is too hard. No, you're right. That is hard, but it's not too hard. The deliverer is right here, right? And, and this is just Moses. This is just a human deliverer, let alone the Lord himself. And so, um, th there's certainly a time to say, uh, what the Bible actually says, man up, right? The Bible uses that, act like men. Uh, in general, I think young men tend to be too coddled, right? I coached high school basketball for a few years and there was one kid who was super out of shape and we were doing spritz at the end of practice and, um, and he, was <laughs> he was painfully slow because he was lazy, he just, he didn't care. And um, apparently, I turned around and addressed the team before he got back to the group, and his mom was in the door, and she saw me address the team before he got back, and she was offended for her son, right? And I think she's wrong. And I think that sort of coddling is part of why he was slow and lazy, because he wasn't being called to man up, right? So our, our age is excessively concerned with feelings and excessively concerned with making sure there's no offense. So if you offend someone, did you abuse them? 
Probably not. Almost certainly not. Um, and what's the arbiter of whether or not it's even wrong? Our culture says their feelings. But God, I mean, have, you've read the Bible lately, right? Like it says lots of offensive things. <laughs> Filled with offensive things that God says are true and right. right. I mean, Jesus offended all over the place. The dogs shouldn't eat this meat, right, this meal. It's not for the dogs. Talking to a woman. So we need to think biblically and objectively about harm and how God thinks about harm. Uh, but uh, which is the next one, abuse is detrimental. It causes objective harm or injury to those who endure it. Uh, that question of harm is a challenging one. What is harm? You know, physical harm is generally easier to measure. Um, but, but something like, yeah, uh, verbal, emotional, spiritual, psychological, how do you measure that harm? It, uh, the Bible does have categories for these things. Uh, talk, the Proverbs talks about how a tongue can be like sword thrusts. That, that's communicating a pretty strong level of harm. That whole thing of sticks and stones and breaking my bones, that's not true. Right? Words, ca words can be, especially for somebody you love, somebody you value their opinion. They can say something to you that will stick with you potentially for the rest of your life. So is it verbal abuse? And where's the line? And how do you draw it? And how do you measure harm? So the, the part of the challenge of those categories is a, a, they're very popular right now, but B, there's generally no burden of proof on the person alleging it. And then in the critical theory framework, if the person they're accusing has power, which they almost always do, then of course they're an abuser because they have power, right? Um, so there's all kinds of allegations on the internet of these kinds of abuse that almost never have proof, let alone evidence. Well, he said this to me. Like, it'd be interesting if you kept a journal for a week or a month of how often you have a conversation with someone where they say to you, this person said this to me, or you say to someone, that person said, and, and what they're relaying is a negative uh, event. And, and we just take it in, right? And it's just life. Oh, I'm so sorry, you poor thing, right? The Bible calls that an accusation. And it's gossip or slander. Unless you've been authorized by God to engage in that situation. Right? I mean, I'm, I don't think I'm making that up. And, and so much of what our communications technology has done is facilitate the spread of gossip and slander. Wasn't it Twain who said, uh, a lie is 
halfway around the world before the truth has put its pants on, right? It just, and so there's all these accusations out there that it's just the air we breathe. Um, And the Bible talks quite a lot about how gossip is like a juicy morsel. And that that, uh, Proverbs 18, a person who states his case first seems right until another comes along to question him. So often in these cases, another doesn't come along to question him because that that one doesn't even know that he's being accused because it's just happening over here. And, and that reality is it seems right. So you hear it and you're like, I can't believe. I can't believe Corey said that. You know, what a jerk. Right. And I could be told, which I am, I could be totally making it up. Right. But now we all have this negative verdict of Corey because he said this. Right. I mean, this this is this is the world where Bill. Good job, Bill. <laughs> Bill doesn't believe it. That, that's a big one, I think. I think we need to recognize how much gossip and slander are parts of our lives, how much we partake in, how much we receive. Okay? Yeah, Dan. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. So it depends um, on your relationship and the moment and Usually, if you say, "Oh, ha- have you talked to them about that?" Oh, well, w- no, you know. Uh, but you, well, she she wouldn't listen to me. Aunt Deborah's the worst, right? <laughs> like, oh well. And then if you and it, so, am I dealing with a Christian here or not? Like, oh, well, I'd I'd be willing to go with you to talk to her. Well, I, I don't know if that that seems, uh, you know. And so it dep- it does depend on the relationship, uh, but you might correct them or you might redirect them or you might just uh, but what we don't want to do is just participate in it and I do think the, fir- the, the hardest step actually is just increasing our awareness of it uh, Paul Tripp has an old book War of Words uh, that is very helpful on these sins of the tongue basically I, I haven't read Respectable Sins by Bridges but I bet he talks about it there too because it's definitely one of the respectable ones um, but yeah, so a lot of it, this, this is where authority is really helpful too, of do I have the authority to engage that person here? good question. So uh, that's where I want to say we have to get at the harm. What what is the actual harm that's being alleged? And and how does that how do we measure that? So so just to keep picking on Corey if I invented charges against Corey and we went through the process and excommunicated him right that would be you could call that spiritual abuse I guess the adjective doesn't matter as much, but it, it's, it's misusing authority. In this case, it is spiritual authority, right, to, uh, to maliciously. So not even necessarily um, if, if a court, whether it's an ecclesial court or a civil court, gets a wrong verdict, 
not necessarily abuse. There, there can be honest mistakes, right? There's, there's limitations. Uh, so a, a court get and people are finite answerers. Um, but, it, but if it's a malicious, I'm going to use my authority to mistreat someone at a high level. You could call that spiritual abuse. Um, psychological abuse, that, again, it's, it's what do you mean? So with these, verbal, I think, is a little easier. Okay, I have these words, these things this person says. And we can, I would imagine, we can all imagine a scenario where, um, you know, a child who's growing up in a home where the mom is just <coughs> angry, just angry, and it's relentless day after day, right? And she's just taking it out. She might never strike the child, but what's the effect on that child? Because what that child should ex experience from its mother is care, love, instruction, right? And she's experience, he or she is experiencing the opposite of that. And, um, and why is the mother doing that? Maybe she's got a guilty conscience and she's trying to uh, improve her own standing in life by, you know, that's what a lot of times when we tear other people down, it's because we want to look better by comparison, right? Or maybe, um, isn't it Jordan Peterson who says, don't let your kids do anything that makes you hate them, I think. <laughs> and so, but maybe the mom is just fed up with the behavior of the children and says, I'm gonna do the most extreme things I can to try and change their behavior, right? I, I'm willing to go to the mat to try and get this to stop or get this to happen. Like there could be all kinds of things that, um, at some point I think you have to say that's verbal abuse, right? Where it's, it's the intensity and the duration, it's pronounced detriment. I was very angry with one of my daughters once um, where we had been through a season uh, where she was uh, challenging would be a mild word. And, um, and I just, it was selfish and, and I just got angry with her and I yelled at her, didn't touch her, didn't threaten her, but I yelled at her and uh, felt terrible. And came back, and I don't even know how quick it was, relatively quick, and apologized and sought her forgiveness. Uh, and I talked to her years later, and we I talked about this incident, and she said, what are you talking about? I don't even remember that. Right. So, and I remember that, like, that was one of the biggest parenting fails of my life, you know, <laughs> to, to yell at my daughter that way. And um, did I abuse her? I don't think so. It was, it was deeply sinful, it was selfish, it was harsh, it was unloving, inconsiderate, all kinds of things. Um, could she have remembered that? She could have. Um, but that part of where you get into it with those things too is do we have a gospel? Is there grace? Is there forgiveness? Are we just the passive victims of the sins that we, we see? Or are we responsible for how we respond to them? So, so I would say with those 
emotional, spiritual, psychological, I think they're all kind of in the same category of things and verbal would be similar but not the same. Verbal's just a little easier to identify and perhaps have evidence for where other people heard it or you've got a voicemail or, you know. Um, but those kinds of more subjective things are much harder to identify and address than a physical, a sexual type person. Yeah, it's pronounced and detriment. And so the harm is, uh, and I don't have that note there, but the harm is as God defines harm. So there's, you've probably seen, there's pretty regular stories nowadays of children being taken away from parents because the parents don't affirm their trans identity. In even otherwise conservative, I just saw one in Indiana today. Like Oregon, okay, I get it. But Indiana, you know, California, I get it. And it's, and so what they've done is they've redefined abuse to include the um, failure to affirm the child's chosen gender identity. That is not abuse. Affirming your child's chosen, that would be abuse, right? Saying to your child, you, you're not a girl, you're a boy, or vice versa, is actually faithful parenting, right? Going along with it is the sin. And so that's where uh, how you define abuse makes a big difference. Um, and it's part of, you know, a lot of quarters would say that uh, biblical discipline is abuse. A lot of definitions, uh, Darby Strickland's at CCF, her definition of physical abuse, spanking would be abuse. But I don't think she would say spanking is abuse. And so that's what I'm saying. Okay, I, I don't think you've worked out your definition enough if you can take it that way, okay? And there is a, well, it's not discipline at that point. <laughs> There's a way to um, use the rod that is abusive, that is sinful, right? Um, well, there's a way to do it that's sinful and a way to do it that's abusively sinful, right? So, I'm imagining there's no parent who's disciplined their child who has never had sinful anger in doing it, right? That's a sinful way to discipline. So it's not necessarily abusive, but it can be abusive, right? Where it's just beating. It's not loving, it's not corrective, it's not considerate. It's you're gonna feel my wrath because you went against my will, okay? So, and again, that's why having a biblical vision of faith for authority, if I'm going to discipline my child, that's a serious thing, right? Where God gives you authority to exercise that authority, that's a serious thing. And you have to be able to do that in faith. Um, meaning saying, yes, this is what God calls me to do and it's good. And it's for the good of the one I'm, I'm leading. So I know that the... Uh, Emotional, spiritual, psychological, that's a little, in a lot of ways, that's unsatisfying. 
but I think it's just the nature of those terms, right? And so, yeah, show help me to understand what's the detriment as God defines it, right? Well, it hurt my feelings. Well, maybe it should have and maybe it shouldn't have. Uh, what does God say about what the person did? Was it right or wrong? And how badly? Um, and then uh, finally, abuse affects another. So the abuser seeks to achieve his ends by taking something from others. Others bear the cost of his project of oppression. And so that's where that, that reality of depersonalization, which is part of where if you're dealing with someone who has been abusive, part of repentance is for them to see the other person as God sees them, a person made in the image of God and worthy of love and care and right, excuse me, right treatment not as uh, a means to an end, not as something to be exploited to gain what you want. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so can, uh, can neglect the abuse. I w there is a lot of overlap. I prefer to keep those terms separate because abuse tends to communicate, I think, more active and, and, and commission and neglect is more the failure to act, um, which is sinful all throughout scripture. So when somebody has authority, that also means they have responsibility. And if they fail to exercise that authority, they are sinning. And the people who, so that's where, you know, the parents who don't discipline, they're sinning against their children by orienting them to the, a, a world <laughs> in a way that's inconsistent with how God has actually structured the world. And so they're going to go through life uh, until they do finally meet an authority who disciplines, <laughs> which is usually the police, right? They're going to go through life having been fueled in self selfishness by parents who didn't love them enough to discipline them, right? Which is a form of neglect. There are even, you know, um, I mean, you hear horror stories, kids locked in closets, not fed, and, you know, not cleaned and not clothed. And, um, those things are both, right? It's abuse and neglect. There's active and failure to act. So yeah, I think they're kind of twin sides of the, it's all of it's profoundly selfish. Is that, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. We have three Lords. That's, I don't know how often that happens, but does that help? Yeah. So uh, in my dissertation, I have in the history part, I have a lengthier section from William Gooch who was a Scot um, Puritan. And he talks about some of those dynamics uh, for husbands, for fathers, for parents, for masters, for, right? If you don't exercise your authority, you're sinning. Um, and that's, that's important to, to see. Okay, elements of abuse. <coughs> so you have the abuser. That's the person who's, who's abusing, right? They're, the, they're perpetrating this treatment um, I put that acronym there, HPHP, so that's not Harry Potter or Hewlett Packard 
is uh, hurt people hurt people. You ever hear that? First use is an adjective. They're a hurt person. Hurt people, that's a verb. And a lot of times, so there's, there is some truth to that of people who've been abused are more likely to abuse often. But what that's often used to do is to um, minimize or even in some cases eliminate accountability from that person, right? They couldn't do any better because they've been abused. No, no, no. Then we're not loving them. We're not dignifying them. We're not treating them as a responsible agent in God's world. If you've been abused, you are still responsible before God for how you interpret and respond to that. And the Lord has grace for you. He has comfort. He has sanctification. He has all that you need, right? And that I'll, I'll actually get to that in the next one. But um, So that slogan, we just, okay, but what do you mean by that? Do you mean that they're not responsible? No, they are responsible. Should we be compassionate? Absolutely. Should we understand those challenges? Absolutely. Should the abuser, you have the victim, that's the person receiving the abusive treatment. There is a question of identity here. So if you've been abused, are you a victim for the rest of your life? Because the reality is we've all sinned greatly. We've all been sinned against greatly. And, and these things can tend to take on an over- exaggerated identity. I want to be careful with that because some, some things are so heinous. Okay. But that's why some people prefer the term survivor because they're trying to emphasize the, the more positive co connotation. I've overcome something here. Okay, and there's good in that. Um, biblically, especially when we get to questions of justice and accusation, a person's not a victim uh, from a human level until we've been through a process of justice to establish that. So if somebody's been abused, they can be a victim, know they're a victim, God knows they're a victim, the abuser knows they're a victim, but nobody else knows that they're a victim. Right, the, the fact of their making an accusation does not make them a victim. That's important for justice because that slogan, believe all victims, is a truism, it doesn't work, because if, if you know they're a victim, you don't need to believe them anymore. They're a victim, that's been settled. So what people are really saying with that is believe all accusers. There was for a season there, they would use believe all women, and then that kind of got pushed to the side and it just went to believe all victims. We can't do that biblically. And the options are not believe or disbelieve, right? The option is, okay, you've made an accusation of abuse. That's a very serious accusation that we are going to take very seriously and engage with the process of justice to get to the bottom of it. At the end of which, we might say, yeah, hit you, you've, you've hit the biblical uh, standard of evidence. You are a victim. Here's, here's justice. Or we might say, no, you haven't hit that standard. Or we might say, we don't know. Right? And that's, that's one I think people tend to think that we should always be able to get to the bottom of things. The, the Lord has set standards for evidence, which means there are people are going to get away with stuff in this life. They, they just are. Yeah, go ahead. So is that, is that where you um, make the distinction between them calling that person a false accuser uh -huh. and saying, Right. Yeah. Are you not? Right. Like that there are 
think of false accusers. Right. Yeah. Right. To call someone a false accuser is to accuse them. Sure. Right. And so, which would require evidence. Um, and actually, I don't know if you saw, but uh, Dusty Beavers is a Southern Baptist pastor. He's an Oklahoma State senator, I think. And he just introduced a, a bill to make it a law in Oklahoma that a false accuser receives the penalty that the person they accuse would have received if the accusation were true. That's a biblical standard. We would be better off as a society if we embrace that standard. In our society, it's like, no, no, you can accuse anybody of anything. It's no big deal, right? Which is part of what encourages injustices. Um, it's a huge deal to accuse somebody. Uh, so, yeah, is so biblically, th we had a huge debate in this in CFC, uh, you know, on Sandy Guys, we can't call them victims. You can say alleged victim. Well, alleged victim, then you're calling into question. No, we're not. We're just saying it's not proven yet, right? Accuser, they are an accuser. I understand that's a little bit more harsh than alleged victim, but we, we need to think biblically, not sentimentally, okay? Or else we're not gonna be able to engage biblical justice and, and actually care for people. So there are victims and, and that question of culpability, which we've already talked about, okay? And a, a victim, so, um, Sometimes people want to act like a victim's behavior cannot be a factor in the sin that they're receiving. So um, is the person who's sexually assaulted, who's walking down the street innocently at the same level of guilt as the person who's going out and getting drunk and staggering down the road because does their sin of drunkenness in any way affect how you think about do they deserve to get assaulted absolutely not the assaulter is guilty before God and responsible and the person who sinned and put themselves in a foolish place is responsible we have to be able to say both of those things which again not a popular thought but it's just, again, we're not dignifying people if we don't treat them as responsible agents before God. There are more and less innocent victims, right? If you're a victim of something, you're a victim. But, but if you did things that um, contributed to a situation, you, you, you have to take responsibility for that and know God's grace and forgiveness. And you're not just, you know, uh, often, I mean, Almost always in fights, it takes two. Not always, almost always, right? And you're going back and forth. And so if a couple's fighting and then one of them grabs a knife, or right? That person, their sin is greater. But both parties are responsible. They're not equally responsible, but they're responsible, okay? The other thing about false accusations one of the interesting things I've found is that it's actually exceedingly common in divorce hearings for brand new accusations of abuse to be fabricated, right? All of a sudden, because whoever makes that allegation, they've got the upper, upper hand, right? Right. And it's something like 50-some percent uh, 
I'd have to go back and look at my study, but it was, right, which again, so is that person actually sinfully using power dynamic? Here's how I can get power in this setting. Put that person on their heels, right? It's a big deal. And, and false accusations are a big deal. And if you've ever been falsely accused, you know it's a big deal. So, okay, motive, people, we always do, biblically, we have active hearts that worship, and we always do what we most want to do, period. So the abuser abuses because they want to abuse. They can hate it. They can hate that they're doing it. They can wish they wouldn't do it. But more than they wish they wouldn't do it, they want to do it, right? Right? And that's called Romans 7, right? Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? And so we sin because we want to sin. And that's, that's part of how we, with an abuser, par- part of how you dignify them is you treat them as responsible, right? You were willing to say this, to do this, to, to get what you want. You were willing to uh, treat this person as disposable, as, you know. And you did that because you wanted to do it. More than you wanted to honor the Lord, more than you wanted to love this person, more than you wanted to, right, more than you wanted to have a good marriage, you wanted to have your wife be quiet. More than you wanted to, right, like there's, uh, more than you wanted to um, train and care for your child, you wanted them to, Go clean up that mess. Like, so we do what we do because that's what we want to do. And, uh, and this, that's where the selfishness dynamic. And so, yeah, it can, uh, those motives can be illegitimate in aim, what they're pointing at, or in extent. And so sometimes the sin is not what you want, but you want it too much. You're willing to... You're willing to displace God from the throne and put yourself there. Now we're in the kingdom of me, and in my kingdom, this is the way it goes. And anyone who doesn't go along with it bears my wrath. Okay? Part of the glory of this is the gospel changes our hearts. Right? So when we trust Christ and we repent, and we realize when Jesus died on the cross, He was fully aware of this. Jesus is aware of all my sins in ways that I will, at least this side of glory, I will never be aware of. I have a rather superficial understanding. We all do. The older we get and the more mature we get, the more our understanding of our sinfulness, but it's still small in comparison to reality. Um, God knows our sins fully. And not just actions, not just externals, but heart motives. Knows it all, right? Knows things that uh, we don't want anybody to ever know. He knows it. And when Christ hung on the cross, he died for all of it, right? That, that scapegoat, that, right, the Israelites laying their hands on the goat and confessing their sins and takes it away. Takes away the wrath of God, right? And when, when we engage the gospel 
and you realize God knows the very worst things about me and he loves me. Right? He loves me. How, how can I not love him who loves me? And the more we love him, the more we want to obey him. And so you're in a situation where before you were deeply selfish, not, not necessarily deep, but you're selfish, you're sinful, and, and you've trusted Christ and you've repented and you've experienced his grace and you get in that same situation again that you know defiant child or whatever struggle you're having and you love Christ more than you did before and all of a sudden you have more patience more consideration for your child more peace in your heart more right just fruits of the spirit and you're able to be far more effective in engaging your child because you're not blowing up because you don't love yourself as much, you love Christ more. Right? That, that's how the gospel works in us. But so much of our growth is that. Right? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Well, where do we primarily see that? In his mercy. Right? We see it in his blessings to us, too. But it's a lot of it's in, in his mercy in response to our sin. Uh, and, and so that's where, um, you know, Philippians 2 God's at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure, or, or Romans 6, uh, becoming obedient to, from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you've been committed. Right? The Lord's in our hearts changing what we want so that we actually want to obey him. That's profound help. There's no more profound help to offer an abuser than that. Right? You abuse because you love yourself so much. And you deserve the wrath of God for that. And if you will repent and trust Christ, you will be forgiven and cleansed and righteous. And, right, and that will change a heart. I mean, Paul. Paul was, you know, you could call that a desperate kind of spiritual abuse. Let's go kill Christians. Seems pretty bad, right? Um, and he went from that to loving Christ and dying for his people. And it's, it's the gospel, it's grace. So, uh, motives, means. So mean, the means of abuse are overriding agency. We've talked about that. That's the power differentials. The effects. Uh, the effects of abuse, you know, there's studies all the time that talk about massive devastation that comes in the abused, in the family, right, in the abuser, right? When, when you're sinning at that level, that's, that's affecting you too. It's affecting the person who's being abused. It's affecting the people who care for them, love them. Um, and, and apart from a gospel that redeems and restores, that's what abuse is going to do, right? So it's not, it's not fatalism. If, if you've been abused or someone you care for has been abused, it's not, you know what, that's it. They're, they're destined for devastation. No. No, we have a Savior. Right? We have real hope. We have real grace. We're not fatalists. Um, but apart from that, yeah, there's all kinds of terrible effects. Um, and so... That's one of the reasons this is an important topic. 
Uh, and then finally, witnesses. That's not an element of abuse, obviously, but it is vital for justice. And so, um, because obviously the abuser generally wants to stay hidden, and so you, you tend to have a lot of he said, she said scenarios, which is very challenging biblically, which we will talk about next week because we'll talk about justice. Um, but part of how these categories help us is it's very hard for someone to um, to keep a total lid on abuse. There's often signs, right? There's often indications that something's not right. You overhear a conversation, you see a bruise, you, you know, um, and and so, or you hear them talking about life in their home, and you're like. That sounds like a very fearful environment, right? Why are you, w or you, you, um, I, w one of the illustrations I used was, you know, you're at a ladies' night, and your friend's washing dishes, and you come up beside her, and you put your hand on her, how you doing? And she, right? Why would she do that? I mean, maybe she, she's like my wife, and she's just easily scared, but, uh, I mean, I scare her just by living in our home. You know, I come around the corner, and she's like, like, I live here, you know. Um, but, but maybe she's being abused, right? Maybe she's not, but maybe, uh, maybe that's what's going on, right? So being aware of those dynamics can help. Okay. Uh, I have a table here that came out of the... Uh, dissertation. This is just some 10 stories, I think. Maybe 11, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 stories. Uh, and we can see the sins there, murder, rape, plunder, being sold into slavery. Uh, Potiphar's wife tempted Joseph sexually and she slandered him. Uh, Lot, that I preached about Sunday, he prostituted or attempted to prostitute his daughters. Uh, Pharaoh there was tyranny and enslavement. There was genocide, oppression, incest, um, suborning perjury. So there's there some biblical stories that talk about compulsion and pronounced detriment. And I was just looking at, okay, what uh, is there an explicit motive? Sometimes there isn't. Sometimes there is. Sometimes the Bible tells us what the motives were. And then what means did they use? And so these were just some of the stories. There's lots of others in scripture that we could use. But that's part of why I'm saying this is not a unique and unprecedented sin. This is as, as old as human history, and the Bible addresses it quite a bit. Uh, and you can look at those further. Uh, I do want to spend a little bit of time on, so this first one is the selfishness wheel. So this is my alternative to the power and control wheel. And so instead of uh, power and control in a circle of violence, I'm putting selfishness at the heart and then compel and dominate, which can obviously include violence, but there can be lots of things in that. And then just different categories of, okay, what could be some, some pointers to abuse or evidence for abuse or actually abuse? Um, so if... And that's where, you know, part of the challenge with graphics like this is if you say, so under economic, I have being lazy. So if somebody's lazy, are they abusive? No. 
but that can be part of a package that says, uh, like there are plenty of lazy men in the world who don't want to provide for their families. And right, That can be part of the package of just this selfish entitlement that says you all exist for me. I don't exist for you. You exist for me. Right? That's kind of the heart of the, the motive of abuse. And so uh, you can see the categories there. So I have things like verbal, emotional, uh, the insulting, the gaslighting, dismissing their concerns or hurts, right? Um, physical can include scaring. But again, just because you scare somebody, you know, just because Lily walked around the corner, I'm there, she's scared. I didn't abuse her. Uh, so you, you have to, but it could be. If I'm trying, well, sometimes I do try to scare her, but that's just for fun. <laughs> but if I'm trying to, right, um, and if it's, I mean, yeah, using, using whatever the power differential is to intimidate another in order to get them to do what you want can obviously be. Yes, <laughs> but it was loving. <laughs> it was to make her, the joy of relief. Oh, it's just you, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, yeah. Narcissistic. Mm -hmm. Isn't that just kind of it's just pronounced selfishly. But it's kind of like yeah. Right. Well, that's a challenge of the right. So um, it, it's the whole challenge of labels, right? Does the label describe something? Is it kind of shorthand for this dynamic of extreme sinfulness? Okay. Does it excuse them? Are they suffering from a condition that's that removes their agency? Yeah. Yes. No. <laughs> right. 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 How did how did they get it? <laughs> you know, were, were they on an airplane? Like, <laughs> how did they catch narcissism? <laughs> right. That that's where. Yeah. So. That and that's the whole challenge of, uh, but, as a shorthand for this is a person who is extremely selfish. I don't necessarily have a problem with it. You know, it's just so just tell me what you mean. Yeah. Okay, you have a label, but what does it mean? But what are you like saying like about them? No. <laughs> no, so really what you're saying, so the biblical category is selfishness. Yeah. Right? So I remember uh, so one of the things, my first three years in this church, I was gaining biblical categories for sin. Um, so yeah, I would say, well, I was frustrated. Oh, well, do you mean you're angry? Well, I guess, but I like frustrated better. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like I'm not as guilty, right? Um, and, but what I realized is when you have these biblical categories, then you can apply biblical remedies. And so that's part of the challenge in labeling is if by narcissist you just mean deeply selfish and committed to their own agenda above everybody else, right? Well, then we can talk about that biblically. But if, if you're trying to make it a condition that they're a passive victim of, then, then what do I do for them, right? And, and so 
Yeah, that's a change. These these categories make sense. Any thoughts or questions on that? Okay, then uh, the contrast to that is what I'm calling the love and leadership wheel. And so I'm saying the way God has structured the world, he gives righteous authority to people. Right? And those with authority are called to love and to lead both. Um, and, and so we're to exercise authority loving others, loving the Lord, loving others, and leading them toward God's designed ends for them, seeking God's designated goods for them. Which is why when you discipline your child, then the world says that's abuse. Why would you beat your child? You know, they, they said that about God 20 years ago. Uh, there was this guy in the UK saying that penal substitutionary atonement is divine, it's cosmic child abuse. You're saying the angry father has to beat the son in order to save his friends, right? It's abuse. It's not. It's not. Um, because the son willingly laid down his life, and he's not being abused, right? He's taking on the, the penalty that we deserve because he loves us. He's actually actively intervening. And he's not placating an angry father. He is just, right, together. It's a Trinitarian uh, act to save rebels. Um, but it does show some of those, part of the discomfort with penal substitutionary atonement is the authority dynamic, right? Is God right to be angry with us? I, I don't know if you've read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God since, like, high school when they tell you how bad the Puritans are. But it's a very vivid, uh, Edwards, you know, you're like a loathsome spider <laughs> of the Lord. And it's not all that's true. Right? He loves us. But there is a, a loathsomeness to us in our sin. Um, and so, yeah, you see, so Jesus obviously is the um, preeminent example of this. Righteous authority loving and leading those given to him. And he provides and he protects and he considers and he cherishes and he trusts and he's honest and he corrects and disciplines and he uh, has mission and direction. Right. So, um, so the solution to abuse is not the elimination of authority or power or control or hierarchy or whatever, right? It's, it's the right exercise of those things in faith um, and we're all called to both like we're, we're all called to exercise authority in various ways and we're all called to submit to authority in various ways and and it really does press um, our grasp of the goodness of God's design for the world both in if and how we submit and if and how we exercise both of those things can be very challenging. The abuser, in general, has little to no category of submission. They're just all about the exercise of authority. Right? Nobody's the boss of them. Um, we had a guy once who w went through the membership process and then wouldn't sign 
the application. Why do I have to sign my name to join this church? Well, if you won't sign your name, this shows us why we don't want you to join this church. <laughs> like, if you can't do that, right? If you can't agree to the things that govern our life together, why would we trust you to be part of this teaching? Right, but they're religious. Like, well, right. Right, and so are you seeing the church as a place for you fundamentally to selfishly exploit? Um, or as a place for you to love and be loved, right? To, uh, to grow in the Lord, to serve and be served, like all the, so um, do you see authority as good for you? Yeah. And, and it's righteous authority. It's not, uh, true righteous authority is perfect, but no earthly authority is perfect. It's never perfectly exercised, never perfectly loving, never leading perfectly. But there is such a thing as faithful. Uh, one of the things that I've noticed in 21 years at this church is I see more men who I would call faithful men than any church I've ever been in. That's a huge strength, who fear the Lord, right? Who want to love and lead their families. That's a huge grace. And none of us are faithful, right? We're like perfectly faithful. None of us are, right? We all stumble in many ways, as Hebrews says. But there are, there's maturity, there's strength. Um, and that's a, that's a tremendous force for good in the world. And its absence is always a recipe for disaster. Always. Okay, any other questions, comments? Next week there's a ton to cover with justice. And then uh, if we get through all of that, um, week six I would do duty of protection, duty of resistance, and other questions and interactions. Yeah. No, that's a good question. So that, and that's so the reality of power differentials is someone can have um, official power, power of office, like husband, like pastor, like teacher in a school, like employer, like government official, right? And still be abused by those who are structurally under their authority, but they have their own powers, right? And we'll part of where we'll look at this next week is with Abigail, so she's under the authority of Nabal, uh, but she has power in her household as a, a wife and mother, she has responsibility, and so she exercises her inferior power, her lesser power, for the good of the people under her, uh, and but disobeys her husband's commands. So that's righteous, but a wife could use her power, the, the areas where she does have a power differential, which tends to be verbal and relational. But it could also just be something as easy as grabbing a knife or a gun. That would give you a power differential, right? So even if your husband's stronger, you have a weapon, 
uh, then yeah, that would, he might officially have structure, but in this instance, in this way, the woman's gotten the upper hand, if that makes sense. Or the students with the teacher, or the citizens with the leader, right? Um, and, it, and it could be both. So, And generally, the tyrant is the most insecure about that dynamic, which is why they have to be ruthless. Right, because the tyrant is relying on a tiny proportion. I'm talking civil authority here. Um, you know, the dictator. Usually, he has to be. Uh, it's him. He wants the military. If any of the military, that's a threat because they've got guns and stuff. Uh, if they s are in danger of getting out of line, we got to put them down. And then he's got the few key leaders, depending on how the the country is structured. It's it's a very small group of people dictating to a huge group of people, right? And they know they could be overrun at any moment, so they have to just be ruthless. And you can see that dynamic in other abuse situations, too, where the person just ruthlessly, now depending on how, sometimes people are just really skilled at hiding it, and they, they work the backroom stuff, and so it's not as visible, but they're, they're still being ruthless. <laughs> it's just not as out there. Um, but but a tyrannical power is a fragile fragile power. It always is, right? Which is why the heart of righteous authority is love. Right? Where's Proverbs say, "My son, give me your heart. I want I want my children to love me, so they want to obey me. If I'm if I'm having to intimidate them into obedience, something's gone amiss, right? I mean, there are certainly times to say, "No, absolutely not. You're not going to do that." But even that's not intimidation, it's just conviction. Um, so, all right, any other questions? All right, let's pray.